this group is so collaborative around doing things differently. Not just like, oh yeah, we all want to help each other, but like, how do we all leave Tucson's nonprofit scene better than how we all found it? And that's something very unique to this group, the collaborative spirit not on behalf of just our own organizations, but on behalf of Tucson's nonprofit industry. We can't think about these institutions that have been around for a really, really long time and are set up to survive pandemics. We have to think about those grassroots organizations because they're the ones that know our community best. That's why they're doing the work that they're doing. That's why they're at the front lines of innovation. If they're not funding, an entire ecosystem would fail. This is an opportunity where some of our smaller groups have passion and energy and are ready to step into a place that they may not have been able to before, but can now. Where can you invite some of these groups to the table? Where can you get their involvement and where can you start to get their energy and their experience and expertise? Because it's needed now more than ever. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. And if you're sick of us introducing you to passionate and insightful leaders when it comes to health and well-being, then, well, I don't know what to say, because in this episode, you're about to meet three transformative nonprofit CEOs and be introduced to the Emerging Leaders Network they are building statewide. Prepare to be inspired, challenged, and fired up by this dialogue for newer leaders and smaller nonprofits working hard to help their communities in the midst of a global pandemic and social change movement. There is a lot to talk about. And the truth is, many of us still need practice when it comes to talking about what lies at the root of both COVID and current calls to combat racial and gender inequity. We'll get to our guests in just a moment, but first things first. Be aware that COVID case counts are rising in multiple states, and this is your reminder to be COVID smart at all times. Stay at home as much as you possibly can. Wash up, mask up, maintain physical distancing, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. This virus doesn't care what month it is or what holidays are coming up. If we want continued lower numbers two to four weeks from now, our actions today make that difference. All right, let's get to it. It's time for you to hear about the Emerging Leaders Network that's rapidly growing in Tucson. And it's time for all of us to lean into the important insights, questions, and challenges that are offered up through this conversation. Because, as you've heard in the opening, we need this group's energy, experience, and expertise now more than ever. Today, we have an amazing group of women joining us, emerging leaders from Tucson, Arizona. I am joined today by Megan Headings, the Executive Director at Family Housing Resources in Tucson. Megan, how are you? I'm good, thanks. And also, we have Carrie Lopez-Howell, Executive Director at Sunnyside Foundation. Carrie, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Great. Thank you for being here. And last but not least, we have Amalia Luxardo. She is the CEO of the Women's Foundation of Southern Arizona. Amalia, how are you? I'm good. I'm excited. Amalia, it seems like you were the genesis of all of this. I honestly can't take all of the credits. This all first started when Elizabeth Slater, who is the CEO of Youth on Their Own, Yodo here in Tucson, had our first meeting as a funder and a, and a grantee recipient. And then we said, we're first time women CEOs here. We have a lot of different ideas on what the nonprofit sector should look like. We should start a group. And so... When this all came up, it was supposed to specifically be 
a new CEO group for just women. And then the men started knocking on the door and were kind people. <laughs> so we said, yeah, sure, come on in. The group grew from five or six to about 25 really, really quickly. And that's when I knew we had to call a funder to to back something like this. And we called David Martinez over at Vitalist. You wanted to start off with women CEOs. You ended up with even more CEOs. How did you all work together to put together a set of, for lack of a better term, boundaries? You mean within the group? Mm-hmm. The boundaries really came from the group. And I think that's what makes us really, really special. We didn't have somebody from the outside coming in telling us, this is what you're supposed to do. These are the best practices out there in the world. This is how you're supposed to run a round table. And these are the professional development courses you need to take. It really came from the group and it was really led by the group. So Elizabeth and I really work as facilitators, though there have been other members of the group that have facilitated conversations along the way, because I think it's important for the two of us to be able to fully participate as participants as well. But like I said, a lot of those boundaries, the one that's most important to to all of us is that around confidentiality and and really keeping the space as, as sacred for all of us. And I think that's really what's made it work is that it's a self-facilitated group. We're all CEOs for a particular reason. <laughs> we didn't make it to the top because we don't have the skill set. It's it's quite the opposite. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that in each of us as leaders. Carrie, what's your reflection on the group's origin? Amalia always boosts confidence and reminds me to feel empowered. I think that's one of the hard parts about other CEO groups or groups you walk into is I've always left me personally feeling almost like, oh man, I really don't know what I'm doing from a lot of those groups. Whereas this group, maybe it was because, you know, Amalia, you were kind of taking the lead on that with that mentality of like, hey, we got here because we're talented. We just need a space to troubleshoot with each other versus you go to this group and you're like, oh my God, was I really supposed to be here because this is all the stuff I don't know how to do, or maybe I shouldn't be in this role. And that's what I've loved about the group formed by Amalia and Liz is it's a different mentality. They kind of flipped it on their head. Like we're talented enough to be here. Just give us the space and the confidentiality to really have these conversations because once you make it up there, yeah, it becomes super lonely. You have to figure out who you can talk to and who you can open up to about things. And it's something that I don't think people talk about enough in networking groups for CEOs and EDs. And Megan, your perspective on how things started? That rapid growth, I think from it going very quickly from six female CEOs to the group of 25 also indicates how many positions have been turning over and how there's this real big shift in new leaders emerging. And I think the other benefit to this group is the recognition of there's a lot of us trying to figure this out. And a lot of us are taking on roles that maybe had CEOs or whoever were in the role prior for a long time. And so that transition is incredibly important to lean on peers that are doing that same work, have that same basis of understanding. Yeah. And there was such a foundation of that respect too. I just still remember that first meeting at Welcome Diner. I was invited to be at a lot of CEO groups and I felt inundated with CEO group requests and I was a one person team at the time. And so I had to really figure out what was going to leave me feeling energized and what was going to leave me feeling scared. And this group always left me feeling very energized because the foundation was we're all capable. We're all talented. Amalia and Liz set up a safe place. It was such an empowerment approach a strengths approach versus a deficit approach. I think all of us probably got a gazillion invitations. Oh, come be part of this CEO group. And the problem is, is that 
for many of us that are BIPOC leaders specifically, we don't have it in our budgets. And these are all membership-based groups. And that's something that we wanted to stay away from as we got together is was making it accessible to this new generation. And I use that really loosely because the generation thing is not necessarily for us a matter of age, but just sort of this new wave of CEOs that have different perspectives. We needed to make it accessible for everyone. And if folks were interested, this is one of those groups you get what you put in. Folks were interested, you stay and and you have these conversations that I find really worthwhile. And if not, then that's okay. And another CEO group is probably for you. Megan, what exactly did this group of CEOs offer that others did not and why? I will say what I've recognized from this group is an ability to show empathy towards what others are feeling in it and a humility towards owning that fear factor of becoming a new CEO and all the aspects that come with it. So we've had a lot of conversation around imposter syndrome and some of these concerns that when you're put in a position of leadership, you don't want to speak openly about because it feels like it can undermine or or risk your position. And to have a group that so actively supports those conversations and create that dynamic where you can really feel safe is incredibly important. I think the other piece is that both here locally in Tucson and growing statewide, there's a lot of leadership roles that have been in place for years and years, and that can seem incredibly hard to embrace. And so having a community where you can network and discuss a new approach to the work that we're trying to do is incredibly exciting. Carrie, you're walking into an executive director position that probably was held by somebody much older possibly also of a different gender. And you also find that a lot of people expected somebody else other than you. That's part of why this group got together, correct? I came in and I'm working in a community that doesn't historically have a foundation, an institution that looks like them that could work on their behalf, that could be collaborative. And so even though I came in as an education foundation, I had really big and still have them visions and dreams for what this foundation could grow out to be. So it wasn't even just, oh, I'm a certain age, gender, Latina. It was like, man, we're a foundation that has been almost existing in silence for the last 29 years in Tucson. So I'm coming in kind of like, hey, I'm here, but also this foundation's here. Also, this community is here in a different way. This group is so collaborative around doing things differently. Not just like, oh, yeah, we all want to help each other. But like, how do we all leave Tucson's nonprofit scene better than how we all found it? And that's something very unique to this group. The collaborative spirit, not on behalf of just our own organizations, but on behalf of Tucson's nonprofit industry. I can't make every meeting because, again, it's still growing phase, but the ones I go to, it's just so collaborative and the leaders are so willing to help carry my vision for the foundation because they know that this impacts Tucson in a really significant way. And I feel that collaboration between all the leaders in this group. Amalia, talk a little bit more about the why of this collaboration. It's so clear that the three of you are incredibly passionate and have the ability to hold not just the work of your individual organizations but the work of actually improving an entire geographic region. Why is this particular emerging leaders group so crucial to making that a reality? 
This group in particular, I think, is really important both regionally and on a statewide level because we all, to a certain extent, think differently than the leadership that has been around for 5, 10, 15 years. We have different expectations. If you were to sit as a fly on the wall, we don't talk about the community as what we can do for them. It's very much what can we do for us? We take away that white savior syndrome that's been heavily entrenched both in the nonprofit profit sector and the philanthropic world. There's not a lot of us that are funders in the group, and we don't believe in hiding the ball. Part of it for me specifically was being able to demystify that funder-grantee relationship. There's a lot around that, and folks that work in the nonprofit sector think that us as funders are this all-powerful entity, and it's like the weirdest pedestal to be on. It's horrible. Oh my God, I can't do this or I have to make up this program because that's what they told me to do. It's just very bizarre, the whole thing. And so I also wanted to sort of open up the curtains in that regard too, and be able to really, us as funders, talk about being partners with with our community and with those that are doing the work, really shifting that narrative on how can we work more collaboratively? How can we stop working in silos? Having that opportunity to, to workshop things together as opposed to being told what to do with this really historical lens that perhaps hasn't worked before. And certainly with all the things that are going on around racial equity won't work for us now. And so what can we bring in, particularly as folks with a lived experience, to help elevate all of us? Megan, top three things that you'd like to see the Emerging Leaders Group change in the next three to five years. Malia touched on something really important, which is that the setup of this group is incredibly different. And one of the reasons for that is that we have a funder at the table who is providing both knowledge and an understanding to new leaders. That is a catalyst for this change to really take place where we know and understand that rather than it all coming down to a really well-written grant, the conversations are happening much farther ahead of that. It's happening where we actually get to know and understand what are we passionate about? What do we want to see happen in our community? Where do we want to see the change? And that's what's going to build that long-term change. And that to me is where I actually see a lot more of our potential for change and growth happening is in these very subtle ways that are going to be incredibly hard for us to really measure, for us to really account for over time but that have potential to make significant impacts. The conversations we're willing to have will enable us to say some things that we may not in other spaces. We can have some difficult conversations and then take those learnings from our peers back to our organizations. There's some organizations that are ahead of me addressing pronouns, maybe addressing how we interface with individuals of color and adding their voice to the table in a better way. It just creates a space that is making things happen at a faster speed than they potentially would without us having this group formed. One thing that I am really aware of is also this burnout factor and how do we keep our staff really dedicated to the work that we're doing without burning themselves out? How do we continue to honor and and appreciate everyone's work internally in our organization so that that collective impact is actually stronger and, and goes farther? There's work that needs to be done there. 
truly the biggest one to me is just the systemic racism that is prevalent in almost all of our organizations and all of our community and in our government today. That's just enormous and has to finally be addressed. And I feel like this year that's happening. And I don't think we can let that momentum go. I'm so grateful that this group was formed already because this is a potential avenue for us to really get some strong growth and some collaboration happening that can make change. Carrie, what would you like to see change and build on some of the issues that Megan has already brought up? It has to do with taking the theory of systemic racism and applying it to the way that we collaborate. That's where I see as a foundation that serves the South side of our community and that has board members directly from the community. And we are a foundation. We are an institution. I see that the fear around real true collaboration, let's talk about systemic racism. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's think on it. Let's do this. Let's do that. But then it's like, but how close to collaboration is everybody willing to get? And I think that's why it's so critical that women's foundation is in these conversations with the emerging leaders group, because it's taking away this mystery of, oh my God, that's one of our main funders in town. Now they're not just at the table having this conversation with us. They're building up another foundation in Tucson that needs this information, that needs their expertise, that needs guidance. Like Amalia has been a mentor one-on-one for me since I took this position. And so the impact that Amalia and I will leave will be that, man, because she came to the table, she empowered me to be able to build something out here that addresses systemic racism at the collaborative level for nonprofits. And I hope that makes sense, but it's just one of the things that I continue to see is that, man, we will talk about some of these issues, but when it comes to collaboration, people are still really scared because there's money attached to it. There's revenue attached to it. And we're scared to even talk like that. We're scared sometimes to be like, oh man, we're all going for the same grant. Well, we need to look at collaboration more honestly and more clearly. Maybe you won't get as much of that grant you got before, maybe your revenue drops in some area. But if it's an empowering a whole side of town or a whole community that has leaders in place, that has executive directors and nonprofits in place who aren't at this table, then we need to take that risk and jump towards that. There are so many grassroots nonprofits with EDs and CEOs that maybe don't look like the same format that we have. Maybe they're not 30 years in, maybe they don't have things like financial audits and reviews and they don't have some of these things in place so they don't organize in the same way, but there are EDs and leaders in the community right now doing this work. And even us as a foundation, like Sunnyside, like we have to make cuts somewhere to collaborate with this other group that exists so that I'm not holding on to so much of my own power in order to make sure the community is getting served in a real equitable way. It always comes down to collaboration. It always comes down to what's happening in action. That's something that this emerging leaders group is changing because we have these conversations and then we legitimately go collaborate with each other, even if it's at cost to how things have normally been done, how you've normally been funded. The fact that we can have those honest conversations, like, hey, who are you talking to? What are we doing? What's going on? It's an honesty that I don't think you can really move a needle on systemic racism in nonprofit if you're not having that honest of a conversation. It comes down to collaboration and revenue and grants. Amalia, how does it feel to get feedback like that from somebody that your foundation is funding? It's great. To, for some clarity, the Sunnyside Foundation and Women's Foundation haven't worked together before up until Carrie and I 
have come on board in our respective roles. You would think otherwise, but no. So there's a lot of that newness happening. And so Carrie's not wrong in that the rising tide lifts all boats. Include the rafts, include little boats. Because like I was like a little boat. My foundation was a little tiny boat and where nonprofit pats themselves on the back too often in these conversations is a rising tide lifts all the boats and they forget that there's rafts and people in little inner tubes and they matter too because they're serving people and they have community trust also. And so that's where Amalia being in this conversation, it actually did what that saying is where too often in nonprofit, we think that we're doing something, but we go, okay, it'll raise all the ships, but we forget like there's boats in the water, there's rafts, there's inner tubes, there's kids on floaties in the water. Like if everyone's supposed to be lifted, are we really doing that? Or are we just saying we're doing it? I remember having a conversation with a group of leaders. One of the questions that one particular individual brought up was, how are we supposed to deal with this racial equity thing when we're trying to survive? One of the things that this group allows us to do is have these really frank conversations around that. And my response to that is that if you think racial equity is a distraction, you're in the wrong business. Racial equity for us in particular, also gender equity, using those lenses um, as part of the work should be inherent, should ju- is, is just part of the territory. If you're looking at all of our demographics and, and the folks that we're working with in our community, it's there. It's largely black and brown communities. That's why nonprofit organizations exist. That's what we're here for. I know that both Megan and Carrie have said this. But that is one of the things that we are striving for as a group is putting that lens in particular at the forefront of our work and not necessarily with our staff, because I have this feeling that most of our staff gets it, but doing it with the board and with our donors. Because again, people forget it's been this thing of an us versus them. And so they're so disconnected with what the community actually looks like that that racial equity perhaps is a distraction to some folks and they don't understand that it's really the core of our work. A board member says, well, yes, as a nonprofit, our goal is to help with economic and social and health disparities. But we're not a social justice foundation. Yeah, we've heard that one before. Talk about that gap between what needs to be done and what a board can see should be done. And how do you bridge it? There's a lot of education that needs to be done. Boards need to understand what racial equity is because they don't. They need to understand what gender equity is because they don't. They need to understand what social justice is because they don't. I think a lot of folks, particularly on a board level, think that when you talk about social justice, you're thinking about the people that are rioting, the people that are protesting. That's part of the entire ecosystem, but it's not exclusive to that. I think the other problem is, is that the board doesn't look like the community that it's serving. Historically, what's been done is that you build boards that are older white people that have really deep pockets because, of course, there's their financial responsibility, a fiscal responsibility to the organization, which is all fine and good. But who's to say that I don't have the wealth, that Carrie doesn't have the wealth? Who's to say that? Nobody knows because we've never been asked before up until this moment in time, which I think is a disgrace. But also beyond that, the folks that have that lived experience that come onto the board can give you a better outlook on 
okay, I've been in this community, this is what's worked for us. And so these are the programs that we should probably implement. Because if you're looking for a board that you can look to for ideas outside of the financial piece on how you can make your organization better, it's that kind of board that you need, not the kind of board that has existed for a millennia. Education is a big piece, but I think the other huge component is a shift in what our boards look like. And I would say it's not just the board level. I think that's important also to address that it should be that that needs to trickle down into all aspects of the programs of the organization. I agree with Amalia. She stated earlier that a lot of our staff already have a lot of awareness or understanding of some of the issues and sort of systemic issues with racism in the community or or that have caused a lot of these problems. It's also the opportunities to engage individuals within the communities in all aspects of our programs about how we're structuring things to make decisions on a day-to-day basis that I think is more important than the board dynamics, but I think is equally as important because that day-to-day piece is where you see the action happening and how you're making changes. This is why I'm going to say Sunnyside Foundation, at least where I sit as an ED, is so interesting and probably why sometimes I get so frustrated is because my board doesn't have that. My board is directly people who either live, work, or have lived in the community. We have a 19-year-old all the way up to a 75-year-old. It's exactly what people say we need to have in nonprofit. We're having these conversations again. This is where my frustration comes sometimes of like, because the majority of nonprofits are run by certain demographics where there is this disconnect. And I'm going, oh my gosh, we're sitting on a foundation that's been here for 29 years that has exactly what we say we need in nonprofit, a diverse board, a board members of people from the community. We're raising small dollars from within our own community. We're doing all these innovative things. But getting big donors' attention is so challenging. What they would rather see is go to the traditional institution and have them make all these systemic changes because still that's what they want to see. They want to see the big institution make all the shifts and ignore the nonprofits that maybe are already set up in this way that we're trying to to get these transitions. I get kind of frustrated about it because I'm like, man, there's Mm -hmm. innovation already existing And still what we want to do is go to, and I've been part of both nonprofits, like the traditionally white spaces and say, okay, can you guys become more innovative? Because we would rather fund you to become more equitable than fund the organizations or the grassroots groups that maybe don't look as familiar. Their organizations aren't as familiar or their structure isn't as familiar. We'd rather fund still the traditional thing we know than the thing that we don't know or understand. And I see our own problems in that too. As Sunnyside Foundation continues to grow, I see us becoming much less grassroots and much more formal and institutionalized. But that's the lens I keep trying to keep is like, I don't want our growth to negatively impact other grassroots organizations that are doing the innovative work already. When you reflect on that experience, whether it's at Sunnyside or elsewhere, what do you think is at the root of that for lack of a better term, inclination for a foundation to fund something more traditional versus something more innovative along all the different dynamics that you just identified? What do you think is the driver? We're kind of testing a lot of this. It's because we still don't trust that you can do things differently and it be good. So I see this a lot of ways with funding because the foundation funds predominantly on the South side and we're funding other groups right now. And I see it as we still want the same practices. Well, what about the reporting? Well, do they have a financial review? Well, do they have this in place? Well, what structures do they have in place? We're so scared to just go, you know what? 
we're going to let go of the dollar and trust this organization. We're going to trust the relationships they have. We're going to trust the work that they do. And also the root is we have to find donors that are ready to just give and trust. I am a donor. When I give, I let go of that dollar. I'm going to trust the institution I give to, and I'm going to let go of it. And I'm not going to hold them so tightly to these things that then they're having to restrict the people that they're funding or the organizations they're funding. And so I think the education still comes back to donors. If you're not ready to give, like don't give, like give when you are ready to give and trust the institution that you're giving to so that they can do what they think is best and what they know is best for their community. And I think that's the hardest place when you go all the way back. It's like, you have to find these donors that are ready to give and give without the strings attached so that organizations can operate. Megan, when you're a big foundation, the mindset is one of responsibility and accountability to wherever the money came from. Responsibility and accountability to this nebulous idea of the community. What Carrie's talking about is just trust the community. What's it going to take to bridge that gap? You'll literally hear board members say things like, well, you know, we have to report to the IRS and we have to report to community stakeholders and we have to report to and report to. And we also have to be able to account for every dollar spent. Our aversion to risk is, I think, causing us more harm than good. And I see this happen over and over. And this is typically what the government's response is as well. The systems that are put in place are trying to control risk so finitely that we end up putting barriers to access to programs that are mind boggling. And frankly, we spend so much more money trying to control rather than just trusting. In my belief, there does need to be some process for a funder to establish that trust, to establish some basis of confirmation that this project or this entity has merit and is willing to do the hard work for the outcomes they say they can accomplish. Once that's determined, there needs to be a backing off and letting the work happen because otherwise you're just putting in barrier after barrier and an organization's time and energy goes into ensuring compliance rather than actually trying to achieve outcomes that are gonna change the world. I appreciate that Carrie brought this up because we're seeing it in such large numbers right now because of the response to the pandemic. As an organization, we both are a funder and we are a service agency. And so we're seeing this real separation and struggle between an ability to just get the work out and the needed resources out there to the community. And when a structure has been built to try and mitigate risk down to the finest level, and it just is broken at every step of it. I mean, the state of Arizona and getting unemployment insurance out, it broke the system and they had to stop it and halt it. Arizona Department of Housing with the rental assistance, I mean, it's still barely trickling out and people are suffering. They're being evicted. They're leaving their homes. There's a large number of people that are just fearful right now and they're vacating before they get evicted, even though there's a moratorium right now. This notion that somehow we're doing better by putting in controls and measures and checks and balances and that all of this is going to somehow lead to something that's so much better is so devastatingly wrong. And that, I think at the core is what has to change. 
Amalia, that sounded a lot like the description of an institutional system that's designed to preserve itself rather than to make change. Yeah. You know, when COVID first hit, because we're not a Ford Foundation, we're not Rockefeller Foundation, you know, these multi-billion dollar foundations that can afford tapping into their endowment. But even with the very small portfolio that we have, comparatively speaking, I explored the conversation with the board on, if it really hits the fan, what can we do? We need to do something. Those are the inherent conversations that need to happen with all of these larger foundations. If you've got huge portfolios, what are you sitting on the money for? Supposedly, it's to help the community. And so you can't bury yourself with the money. It's not going to keep you warm. You're dead. (laughs) You need to help the people that are still alive and that are suffering through all of this. It's kind of this mixed bag of nuts, right? We We do solely unrestricted funding in our annual grants. We've moved to doing renewable grants at a much higher at a much higher cap, but we do still have a process by way of applications and that sort of thing. But to Carrie's point from way early on, that these relationships happen much before the application process. And so if we're meeting with an organization that does really good work that merits unrestricted funding, then we would help them with the application process. And that's not something that you hear of really commonly that a foundation provides that support. And as far as reporting and that sort of thing, we actually bring on people to help the organizations that don't have the capacity to to look through all of the numbers, you know, or go through their database, not even have a database, so that we're able to get the data that we need as a funder without adding that burden to the staff on that nonprofit organization. This year, we did things a little bit differently in that We didn't even have an application process for our annual grants. We just worked with the nonprofit organizations that we've been working with for years that have seen a huge influx in need because of what happened with COVID. And we just got the checks and that was it. And we said, here you go. We know you're doing the work. Please keep your lights on because if not for you, we wouldn't exist. (laughs) That was really the approach that we took. And that's true. And I feel like a lot of funders, philanthropists forget that. If not for the nonprofit organization doing the work, what would be the point of us? Nothing. I would be out of a job. I think it's really important to also keep that in mind is that these nonprofit organizations, especially now that are trying to survive, those are the ones that need the most funding now. We can't think about these institutions that have been around for a really, really long time and are set up to survive pandemics. We have to think about those grassroots organizations that Carrie's been talking about because they're the ones that know our community best. That's why they're doing the work that they're doing. That's why they're at the front lines of innovation. If they're not funding, an entire ecosystem would fail. Here's the interesting interplay. We're talking about the massive need for grassroots, community lived experience, for emerging leaders, and yet there is this interplay with larger institutions that want to be supportive and sometimes struggle to do so. Amalia, if you would reflect on that in the case of the growth and development of the Emerging Leaders Group itself. As this group grew and Elizabeth and I really thought about amidst the the pandemic and everything that's going on, it'd be really nice for us to take a step back and give the reins to someone that's not necessarily someone in the group because we know that they can use this space to air out their troubles. But who can we work with that we could trust that really understands how all of us are aligned in our mission, vision, and values? And so that's how this group of consultants came in. 
they're all women of color. They're all entrenched in the work of the community across the state. They understand the lenses that we're trying to incorporate into our organizations. If we're not doing that already, they understand how to have those conversations. It's a much higher level of a conversation. And when they stepped in, it wasn't like, well, well, this is how this group is going to look like. They asked us, much like how we've been handling the group, what do you want it to look like? And so we are the ones that articulated how we want to move forward as a group. That other thought on other phases is hopefully being able to offer that collaborative space with folks across Arizona. I'm not from here. I've been here for 10 years and I've heard over and over how Phoenix and Tucson, like there's such competition and Maricopa this and Pima County that, but if we work together, we can get these really big funders into Arizona. And so why not do that? We have this huge opportunity. Why not do that? The more of us that you get together on a united front, the more turnover you're going to start to see on all of these different areas in staff, in boards, hopefully in other CEOs. We talk a lot about this, that we need to, that we need to amplify and empower other rising stars that are younger, that are people of color. Okay, so how can we do that now that we're here? How can we utilize our power in order to do that? And I think building a really strong network, not only in the region, but across the state is really important. So that's what these folks are here to do is to help us do all of that. Because some of us are one woman shows like Carrie, (laughs) and it's impossible for her to carry that burden on her own. Even if we have a staff, we're all doing the work. And so how can other folks support us in doing all of this and getting us all together without burning us out. Megan, people are listening to this podcast right now and thinking this is really cool. How can funders do more? How can other organizations do more to support the network and build it out? a few ways that they can help. I think that understanding who is currently participating, understanding the work they're doing and supporting the efforts of collaboration that are happening. It's critical. The more that this group comes together, the more that we're allowing ourselves exposure to new ideas. And I would hope that that also trickles out to the fundraising opportunities. They'll have exposure to these new leaders, to understanding the work that we're doing. Carrie, what do you think? There's people out there listening and they're thinking this is a pretty cool group. What would you like to see in terms of support to help this network grow and be more successful? If you're listening to this and you're going, man, that's so great. I want to help them. We have so much power. If our inclination is to donate, there is power in that. Just examine the way that you give and the places you give to and ask yourself the hard questions of, Well, why haven't I given there? Why am I waiting on archaic systems to change when there are really great organizations? There's great things I can be supporting. We have so much power as donors when it comes to nonprofit. It's how we all run. If you're listening and you're going, wow, I want this emerging leaders group to thrive and your inclination is where can I donate? It's go donate because our group is a vast mix of small people. I'm not the only one person organization in this group. If you have a group, start assessing who's in your group too. Assess your power and like where you're giving your money. Ask yourself hard questions. 
why why you're waiting to give. Take a risk in giving to a new place and to a smaller organization, a grassroots group. If you're in an emerging leader group right now, look at your list of who's at the table with you and look at the systemic pieces. I think there's a new cool change right now where we're getting lots of new young BIPOC leaders. If the leader is a person of color, but the board is still predominantly white, and they still run in the exact same format that they've always ran. We still don't have all the right people at the table. We're still not empowering all the right organizations. There is an important aspect that's come out of this pandemic that is how much is needed in support of some of these smaller groups. The pandemic has also created these situations where the scale of the problem is so enormous and the need is so great that this is often when government and some other groups want to go to the biggest players to make an impact because they're the known people at the table. They're the known groups already doing this work, but they're tapped out and they have overextended their ability to do some of this response. And this is an opportunity where some of our smaller groups have passion and energy and are ready to step into a place that they may not have been able to before, but can now. Where can you invite some of these groups to the table? Where can you get their involvement and where can you start to get their energy and their experience and expertise? Because it's needed now more than ever. Amalia, we'll give you the last word on this. If funders are listening and you're interested in creating a new program for emerging leaders that different generation are filled with folks that represent the BIPOC community, don't do it. Give us the money. The work has already been done. We're here. We need the money. Again, a reminder, this is not a membership-based CEO group. We're running out of our own sacred time at this point. We are the emerging leaders. We're already looking into exploring other phases. We are looking into exploring what it looks like to be a statewide network. So if you are a funder and if you're interested in funding something like this, fund us. We are happy to be the guinea pigs. We have already got the preliminary surveys done. And if there is any sort of reporting that's needed, we already have it in hand. We're ready. If you're a donor and you believe in leadership development, but you also recognize that women and people of color can't afford it, fund us. The majority of this group are women. Several members of this group are people of color that don't have it in the budget to be in membership-based groups. And that's one of the reasons why we're here is because we make it accessible to everyone. And if a donor is able to give us either consultants to facilitate a conversation or to buy us breakfast when we're self-facilitating our workshops, that would be great. We come in a nice packaged gift, ready to go. We've been doing the work and the best thing to do would be to fund this group. Thank you, Amalia. Thank you, Megan. And thank you, Carrie. The three of you are rock stars, representing an obviously incredibly insightful and energetic group that's poised to grow statewide. All the emerging leaders need are more resources to get there. Vitalist is already at the table providing support, and this group is more than happy to have more. One of the best ways to grow is through communication. Check out our show notes for direct links to the websites for Women's Foundation of Southern Arizona with CEO Amalia Luxardo, Family Housing Resources with CEO Megan Headings, and Sunnyside Foundation with CEO Carrie Lopez-Howell. Don't forget, a twindemic of flu and rising COVID cases is possible, and avoiding that twindemic is up to us. So stay COVID smart. Get your flu shot now to help avoid the combined effect of the flu and COVID on our neighbors, our healthcare professionals, and our hospitals. Next, 
Make sure you continue to wash up, mask up, physically distance wherever you can, and keep a heads up for each other out there. Double points for masking up, by the way. It can help prevent COVID and the flu from spreading. Remember, we're in a marathon, not a sprint. By being in this together, we'll get out of this together. One more reminder, the courts have spoken and the U.S. Census deadline is now October 31. Do your part to make sure everyone living in Arizona gets counted. Encourage people to visit 2020census.gov today. That's 2020census.gov. Our COVID-19 roundtable will be back next week. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. We've got nearly 50 to choose from, which means there is a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.